Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. And in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. I'd like to thank our sponsor, The Money Nerve, a financial resource that helps you have a healthier relationship with money. Do you feel shame around your past financial decisions? Do you feel alone in your financial struggles? Do you self-sabotage your potential financial successes? Do you keep making the same choices, expecting different results? The Money Nerve has just launched a new online course called The Course to Financial Freedom. To learn more, go to themoneynerve.com forward slash course. The Money Nerve has an offer to all Money You Should Ask listeners for a 25% discount on the course. Use code MYSA, all caps, 25, and start your course to financial freedom now. Thanks again to our sponsor. Well, I'm super excited today because we have a great guest. And uh, not that we don't always have great guests, but I'm really excited about this particular guest. Um, She's written a book that's coming out this week um, called The Mindful Millionaire. The Mindful Millionaire. Yes, you heard that right. Um, She also has a podcast, The Mindful Millionaire. She also used to have a podcast called uh, The Art of Abundance. Um, She's got an MBA in finance. Um, She currently has a real estate business in Sedona. So I'm a little jealous because that's a beautiful place. Um, She was a financial advisor, mortgage banker, and a business development banking executive. Um, And now she works with people on money. She also, this is important, She teach, she's um, taught meditation and spiritual practice um, for over 20 years, and we'll get into that. Um, Lisa Peterson, it is such a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Bob. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Yeah, I like I was telling you ahead of time, I saw, I saw your bio and stuff. I went, ah, oh, I want to talk to this woman. This is going to be great. Um, I love... Like, so I'm going to just start right off the bat. You know, I, I saw that you had the meditation and spiritual practice and, you know, I'm very left brain, right brain. Um, a lot of my accounting friends are very left brain. <laughs> and so when I say meditation, spiritual stuff, they go, wow, it's two plus two is four, Bob, two is two plus four. Tell me, um, how do you respond to that? Do people say, what if, how do those get, go together? Now they're used to it, but for the past 20 years, I've had to work into it. I think Mm -hmm. what I did was I just kept it completely separate, and maybe you can understand that, you know? (laughs) Because when I got into meditation, I was an executive in a big bank, and I was so excited about it, and I'd start talking about meditation, and people would roll their eyes and kind of distance themselves, and they're like, I don't get it. Plus, I was like 30 years old, you know? It just wasn't something that most of my peers were really that interested in back then, 1999. But now it's, it's come together, but it took me 21 years to figure out how to do that. I'm a little lucky because I'm in Santa Monica. And so, you know, West Coast people like, yeah, figures. Uh, So I get away with it, I think a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. And I was in San Francisco and yeah, they were used to it, but nobody was joining me for meditation at at lunchtime. I, I tried. Yeah, that's well. Here you are now. It's 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 obviously worked. Um, so tell me a little bit about your childhood um, before you became a mindful millionaire. Um, did you dream as a kid of being like a banker and a financial advisor and having lots of money, or 
a fireman or a firewoman? Um, like what was, what was your vision as a, as a five-year-old, six-year-old kid? So my parents were really bad with money and I didn't really uh, subscribe to the way that they managed money. I was kind of like a mini adult from as far back as I can remember. So it was more of around eight when I think somebody taught me about the fact that you could put all these dimes together and then it made up, you know, whatever it is, $5, $10, I didn't pay attention, right? And I was like, wait a minute, like stop the universe. I am super excited. And, and I became completely obsessed with like compound interest and bank accounts. And I got my mom actually to take me to the bank when I was 10 years old to get a checking account. And wow, awesome. I lied about my age at 12 at JCPenney's <laughs> and I got a credit card. I mean, <laughs> crazy things, but yeah, I became fascinated about money because we didn't have any. And I was like, I just decided that money was the, the doorway to freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you good at Monopoly? I did like it. Now, though, I my son kills every time. So I feel like I'm not good at Monopoly now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so after eight and you started your bank accounts and you started getting credit at 12, um, like where, where did you want to go with it? And you saw your parents making mistakes. Were there mantras or beliefs that they tried to pass on to you or... And were they supportive of your fascination with money? Uh, Yes and no. So I think I tried really hard to avoid their mistakes and I learned from their mistakes, uh, (laughs) even to the point where by the time I turned 16, I had already been working for a few years and I was able to pay for like half of my car. And then I got a car loan because I had credit and I actually had better credit and more money in the savings than my parents did. So I would have been the opposite. Most people that I work with aren't that way. Like I'm an anomaly from the people I end up helping these days. Typically people don't work so hard to overcome, but Mm -hmm. I just knew. And I you know, because I would say we were on the wrong side of the tracks, like we were in a lower middle class neighborhood and we would have been probably struggling financially worse than most other families. I yeah. really felt that stigma and mm-hmm. that really, really bothered me. Like I did yeah. not like feeling, I, I misinterpreted kind of, my parents were hippies. And so I misinterpreted the way that families treated us in the neighborhood thinking it was because we were poor, but I think it was because my parents had long hair in the early seventies and a conservative neighborhood. But you, you figure this stuff out later in life. I just became obsessed and, and didn't want to be go. I did not want to go into banking. I did not want to have a financial career. It wasn't actually until I finished my undergrad in the late eighties when the recession was just decimated the jobs. And I took a job and I was making less money than I had made in college, less money than I had made in high school. And it woke me up. And I, after one year of like cocktailing on the eve, you know, in the evenings with a college degree, and I come from parents who had high school education, I was like, I need to go back to school and get my MBA. And I'm going to go find the jobs where there is money. Like it, it was a very conscious decision, but it was more like in my twenties that I was making that right. decision. No, well, that's that's cool. Um, I one thing that you said, and I I, I want to go back to this because I think it's really important for people to hear this piece. Um, you interpreted feeling less than because you thought that you didn't have money, but or you 
you know, created a story. It's not that your parents said, look, this is how it is. Um, we, we all, like, I know I picked up a couple things my parents said, and I took it to the, you know, I just took that to the bank, um, not actually knowing that it wasn't really true, but that's what I fixated on. And so I think a lot of times when we're younger, we make choices as five-year-olds, and then we carry it as a lifetime decision when five-year-olds probably shouldn't be making lifelong decisions. Um, because we're, we're picking up pieces of the, we're seeing one piece of the elephant, right? Not, not the whole elephant. And, um, and so I just think that's important for people to realize it's not our parents' fault necessarily. We may have put something on it or created meaning instead of um, that's the truth. Yes, completely. And I have to say, when your parents are fighting about money all the time, you know, it's pretty tough for it to not affect you. Absolutely. Do you and your husband have financial conversations or financial arguments? <laughs> and did, did it change? We have always been very aligned. So we met in college and it was like a match made in heaven when it came to money. And I think that that is, it's interesting that you ask about that because I would say that is one of the reasons we've been able to be so successful, even though we haven't necessarily made lots and lots of money every year, we're so aligned in working things out. So it's not that we don't argue at times, but we both know that we're headed in the same direction. And sometimes, you know, I'll go through phases where I'm spending more, or he'll go through phases where he's spending more, but we'll bring each other back into alignment um, mm-hmm. because we're, we're very conscious in talking about it. And it's actually always been that way. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, when you made that decision of I want freedom, money is freedom. Like if you look back and, and, and I asked this for the listeners out there that like sometimes like self shame themselves for, for being less than, can you tell me some of the things like that you remember that you felt like, wow, I don't have a choice in this. Like in high school, do you remember certain things that might've been like, ah, that was a little painful. Um, or wow, I didn't get to go to this trip. Um, those kinds of things. I think for me, clothing was a big deal. I grew up in the Bay Area. And like I said, you know, there was a idea that we didn't have enough. So me working was about me being able to buy nice things, buy nice clothes, buy a car, buy a motorcycle. Like I was really into the stuff and having the stuff mm-hmm. reflect positively upon me. Right. And so if my parents couldn't afford it, then I would find a way to get it. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not one to sit on and stew on frustration, just to be like, clear. <laughs> if I, I want something, I go do it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, does that, is that where your scarcity-based um, perceptions came from? And can you so, say more about that? You talk about that in your book. Yeah. So what I found was even though I was really good with money and I could figure out how to bring it in, the problem I realized later in life was that no matter how much money, even becoming a self-made millionaire, because those stories were so entrenched in my head, 
I still worried about it all the time. Right. So that was where the scarcity was coming in. And, you know, I'm not alone. There's been studies about like 50% of women in North America feel like they're a few bad moves away from destitute poverty. And right. these times right now are not helping. I did a survey recently with hundreds of women in a, in a presentation and 65% said, yes, I have that belief that if just a few bad moves and everything's going to fall apart. Well, I had that belief system, no matter how much money I had. Yeah, I, I can hear that. And um, I, as you were talking about that and talking about, you know, self-made millionaire, I, I wonder if there's a story. I know this has happened to me before. You know, I'm looking at a client and I'm like, oh, look at that. Wow. They made a lot of money this year. Look, they cleared this much money and wow, they own two houses and gosh, they're so lucky. And then all of a sudden I'm, oh, wait a minute. I own two houses and I cleared more than that last year. And, oh, I, but I have this, right, this poverty mindset sometimes <laughs> that I don't even actually stop and actually, like, the reality is not what still goes on in my head sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And I have to stop and self-correct and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I, I like to do these personal inventories so that I can go, oh, <laughs> stop reinforcing your story that's not true. Have, has yeah. that, have you ever experienced anything like that? Totally. Consistently. I mean, even a funny story is when I think my son was like nine, we were in the line at the grocery store. And this goes back to those beliefs for early on. And he wanted to buy a can- me to buy a candy bar for him. And I said, you know, honey, I can't, we can't afford that. And it was funny because I had just bought a brand new car and it was right. so programmed. And he looked at me, he was like, eight, nine. And he, he looked at me and he goes, you just bought a brand new car and you can't buy, you can't afford this candy bar. And in that moment, I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm still living these patterns. And I don't even know what comes out of my mouth. Like right. that was a big wake up call. Wow. And how do you, um, how do you, and how do you catch yourself or do, is it somebody else like your son pointed it out or do you have more awareness now of, wow, isn't this a, like, cause I know we can get caught up in our stuff, right? Yeah. I'm so totally. busy with my story that I'm not even looking at the truth. Yeah. And I mean, that's what all of this work is about. Like, mm-hmm. I needed him to show me that I was teaching this stuff and I still unconsciously was doing things that my mom, everything was, we can't afford that. We yeah. can't afford that. We can't afford that. And somehow I had missed that that programming was still in there. And I right. now, you know, the reason that I'm bringing mindfulness to money is because I think that we all do things. Now that one is really obvious and, yeah. and people can chuckle, but like there's some kind of deep, dark, hidden shadows inside of us that we're doing the same kind of thing. It's affecting our life in a certain way. And yet we have no idea it's even happening. Yeah. And, and it's, I think the thing that's interesting to me too is it's perception, right? Because like I think about, um, you know, two people, like one of the stories I like to give is, you know, you see two people jumping in the ocean and you go, wow, they're having really a lot of fun. One person could be jumping in the ocean, terrified that the sharks are going to eat them, which would be me, or somebody else is like just jumping up and down because they're having a lot of fun. And from the outside, it looks the same, but internally it's completely different. Completely different, completely different. And, and what I've seen 
you know, for a lot of people, especially those who have an idea in their mind of what they want to achieve and they've never been able to get there and they don't know what's standing in their way. You know, they just, they've, they've done a lot of inner work. They've tried to figure it out and there's this void. And, and that's kind of my specialty is helping people with that, these parts that just are so close to, you know, like a hand right to your eyes, you can't see what it is on your own. Right. We have blind spots. Mm -hmm. We have blind spots. What do you really love to spend money on? (laughs) If you could just have guilty food. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. We were talking about like Trader Joe's. Well, it's funny whenever things are scarce, (laughs) we tend to place more value on them. So funny, we were talking before the call, uh, Trader, the nearest Trader Joe's is an hour and a half away. There's a few things that they have. I can't get anywhere else. I know. And I will drive all the way there to get them. And, and I, I love food. You know, there's when you've, been living with a certain degree of financial success for a while. It's amazing. And you're so content in it. I want to be clear, like just this absolute sense that I have everything that I want and need. The greatest satisfaction comes from some of the simplest things like a smoothie at Trader Joe's. Right. No, absolutely. Now I'm going to ask you this because I'm going to sort of out myself here. Um, I grew up, my family didn't have a lot of money. There were five kids and, um, you know, my dad probably made less than 20,000 bucks. And, uh, um, so sometimes the end of the month, you know, we had to get creative on our meals, which were usually planned out for the most of the month. But, um, and my dad would shop once a month. And when we ran out, we ran out. But as I got older, I have to like, I have pantries of food. I could go four months, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still have enough to eat because I'm so – like when I would go to my parents' house, I'm like checking the cupboard. Okay, there's enough. We're going to make it. Yeah. I've only been for the weekend. So that – I don't know if you – if that you can relate to that, but totally yes. In sometimes it's just in the things that you you know like candy, like chocolate. I think I still appreciate it at this deep level. Like oh, I can have this. Whereas it used to be like, maybe not, you know, maybe there wasn't any money for that. Yeah. I, um, so in my family, because we had a big family, my parents, my mom used to get seized candy sent out from California because I grew up in Tennessee and the family rule was you get one piece of chocolate. So if you get the wrong piece, that's tough luck. If you got the strawberry jam one and you wanted caramel, that's it. You don't get one until a couple days later. And in college, I was with um, my friend's family and I had bought this five pound box of chocolates for them and they just started eating all the chocolate. And I'm like, that's not the rule. <laughs> you, it's one. They're like, what do you, and I'm like, that's supposed to last you a year. I gave you five pounds. They ate it in two days and I just had a different rule. Yeah. Like, and I didn't know that other people had other rules. Yeah. <laughs> knew they had more money. <laughs> Yeah, you're bringing up, I mean, we do and have always lived more frugally. And it's been very interesting, especially with my son for a while there, he was like on a spending spree, he'd get money and it would go out quickly. And we've always lived in more upper, you know, middle class places where kids have a lot. And he 
is like, why do we live this way? Like, I don't understand. Why does it matter about wasting this? You know, it doesn't, and why can't I have the brand new iPhone? You know, we're like, we just don't do that. Like, it's not in my husband and my programming. We're going to look for the deal. I don't, I don't mind that. He's right. used to it now. Right. And we actually get a joy in saving money still. We do, yeah. you know, yeah. it's okay with us. We don't, we didn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. We went through phases where we spent a lot of money and later looked back and thought, we don't use any of this stuff. Like we did right. go through those phases, yeah. but maybe not like other people. I wonder, and, and I, I don't know if this is cultural and, um, and maybe you've had this experience, but I grew up believing that I was my achievements. And so I had to be the best at this. I had to be an A student. I had to get this college degree. I had to have a really special, exciting life. I needed to like, the package needed to look really good. Um, And even in my professional career, you know, I can crank out 10, 15 tax returns a day, man. I'm like, cause I'm so people I'm efficient. You know, I can type like really, really fast. And when I'm not doing that, I would be, I don't have anything to give. I have no value because I'm not producing. Yeah. Does that, do you hear that much? Does that resonate? It resonates. I mean, I have seen that definitely in my own life. And I think that there's a lot of things. This is where the inner work has really helped me kind of even understand some of that. And some of us, I think you and I, uh, are designed in a certain way where we really, really, really enjoy work. And Mm -hmm. it has value in and of itself. And so it is important that we can love work and we can also love other things just as much and be very careful about associating, like you said, our values value as human beings based on how much you know value we create in the world or how much how hard we work or how much we prove like those are the things that i think that it is really easy to get caught in a trap that doesn't bring us happiness that brings us yeah. the opposite and and i've i've really learned a lot about that over this past 21 years especially yeah i think um for me the biggest aha moment was realizing uh, to actually focus on my gratitude and actually realize all of the things that I did have and all of the things that I just took for granted that other people didn't have. Um, And even in my own, you know, that I have a sense of humor or that I, whatever it might be to go, oh, wow, there's some gratitude there. Uh, Instead of like, well, I can't do this and I don't have this. Um, so I really, for me, it's been a real shift to um, humbled and grateful. Humbled and grateful is like where I really want to come from. And uh, not that I always get it right, but uh, it's, I, I enjoy money. Um, I don't use money as my deciding factor in when I make decisions. Um, it's like, it's not near the top unless I'm getting a really good deal. Cause I'm I, people call me cheap. I like frugal much better, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's what are some of the other things that you learned along the way in this self discovery? So the big thing came down to this journey around enoughness. And I don't think we live in a culture that is ever going to have 
that be reinforced from the outside in. You know, there's the whole temptation of buying things and all the stuff that we're talking about. But for me, the biggest realization was that I could give myself permission and I help my clients do the same around what it means to be living in this place of enoughness, not just having enough, but being enough. Being and enough. that is huge. Like, it is not an overnight thing, but it, every little bit of progress you make in understanding how that affects you and what that means is life affirming. And, yeah. and to me, brings freedom with it. You know, it, it's amazing. It's like, wow, I'm enough and I don't have to, to deal with things that, that demean me or cause me to feel like I am not enough. Like, cause when you stand in that power, all of a sudden you don't really put up with a lot of stuff from other people or even from the media or from the world. You're like, no, I'm going to choose this for myself first. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that there's a little bit of a double bind in this culture in that, uh, you know, it's okay to be yourself, love yourself. And then when you say, wow, I really love myself. Well, aren't you an egomaniac? Um, or it's, it's, you should all try, strive to be rich. Look, I made lots of money. Boy, you're greedy. Um, like it's, it's like we, do, we, we are told to go this path and then we get there and we don't get rewarded. Um, sometimes we get shamed. Yes. And, and, and you have to have, the, like for me, it's like, I'll tell people, look, you know, step out and be seen but know you're going to be a target, step out anyway, like still show up for yourself. Um, but I do think it's hard because I, I do feel this, this double bind. One of the big realizations I had early on when I started my company was around this idea of shadows and greed was one of them. We didn't talk about this, but one of the ways that my family kind of made, tried to make sense of why I was so different. So I have a brother and then my father and mother, uh, they, when I was growing up, because I was so good with money, they thought of me as the bank because they could come to me and I'd always have money. So when I wouldn't give them the money, I became selfish and greedy. And that was the, the way that I was raised. So it wasn't until like six years ago, I started this business and I was doing shadow work and looking at these hidden dark aspects of myself, mining those. And one of the first beliefs that came up, I was like, I think that I'm a greedy person, you know, and that's why I've built all this wealth. And when I went into it, I had to be able to see myself through the lens of what had happened when I was a child and how they had labeled me, how bad that hurt, how I had carried it all these years, how, yes, you know, there are times where I would be selfish. I'm like, no, you know, no. It's mine. <laughs> it's mine. But it had, it had done good things for my family. And it was time to see myself beyond this, you know, greedy, miserly person and instead say, hey, it helped me. It helped me get out of this bad, negative situation with money. And I, I forgive myself for sometimes going too far. And I'm okay with the fact that this is just part of who I am and how I have been designed in this life. And that acceptance allows us so that when somebody comes in, since I'll give you why that was so, so powerful, is I have never, ever been referred to as being a greedy or selfish person in the past six years. And I think it's because I'm like, fine. Like, I'll tell you all the good things about why that is not a problem. If somebody did, and because it's no longer a sensitive spot for me, people 
engage with me very differently. And I can actually teach them how to be more receiving because it dabbles. Sometimes people, a lot of people I work with, they're not good at charging what they need to charge. They're not good at receiving the money. And if you've got fears of being greedy, it's a really big block. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that for a lot of people is I don't want to be, I want to be rich, but I don't want to be seen as greedy. I don't want to be as selfish because rich people, instead of seeing the opportunities that you can serve other people, the opportunities to have freedom um, and all of those kinds of things. And that being broke is not a good, that that's not, there's no such thing as self-care and being broke. Right. Right. (laughs) But, but, we've gotten those messages kind of messed up sometimes in our society. Absolutely. I don't think the universe wants us to be poor. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's a too little esoterical, but, uh, but I, I really do. I think the, I think the universe um, conspires to actually have us succeed um, and that we, we're the ones that get in our own energetic way with our, our stories and our, our blocks and our negative beliefs that we keep, um, you know, for me, I call it the undervoice that's saying, not going to happen for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. You talk about the impact that growing up and being the one with money, um, now you've got kids. And why is it important and what can people do to help their kids have a different understanding uh, about money other, other than I've got to have lots of toys or lots of clothes, like that it's, that it's, it's not about the money. I think you say that um, mm-hmm. it's not about the money. Yeah. What do you teach kids? So first and foremost, it's going to be your actions that are going to be more important than anything. So be the role model, you know, in all aspects, because they're watching you from a very, very young age and they are paying attention to what, what happens in home, in the home. Fascinating. So my daughter's 22. And so she's building her households and with her boyfriend and she's become the lead voice because uh, he doesn't spend in the same way she does. She's very conscious. And I think I look at her and it's like, she's very comfortable standing in her own power. And I think that comes from the fact that she has always seen my husband and I talk about money, talk about the struggles, talk about the questions, talk about the things that we are working our way through and the decision-making process we go through and how conscious we are to those decisions. Mm -hmm. And when he doesn't agree with something, he's very vocal about how I've engaged with that and vice versa. And I think that that in and of itself is probably the biggest teaching because what I'm watching my kids do is they rather than just being spoon fed the teachings, they're soaking it in so that they can actually apply the teachings. It's like second nature to them. We haven't focused a lot on financial education, but because they know it's such an important part of life, they take it upon themselves to make better decisions with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Now you've, you've got this book, The Mindful Millionaire, and why was it important for you to write it? And why is it important for you to want to help people around money? Yeah, I feel like this theme that we're here talking about today, about the fact that there is limitless potential for people uh, that that most of the time they don't even realize is there. So the, the central premise of the book is that 
you have a relationship with money, the more you understand that relationship, the more power and freedom you're going to have in your life. I also admit that because my parents, you know, they both died pretty young Mm. and I never got the chance to help them as much as I would have liked to financially. I think about all the other people that are like my parents out there that have struggled with money and don't know how to turn it around. And they don't realize how much the mindset has to do with it. And so I wanted to write a very uh, welcoming, story-filled journey around some of the struggles I've had and be very humble and open and kind of share those embarrassing things right? that nobody talks about so that people could see that even though I've reached success, I have done so many things that that I later looked back and learned from and that if I can do it, so can other people. Like no judgment, no shame, no guilt. Most financial books don't uh, like invite people into that environment, but that was the most important thing to me. Like, let's just be like, let's put all of our cards on the table and be really honest and let's see what we can do and how I can help you from my own journey, turn things around for the better. Well, that's awesome because I do feel there's a lot of financial stuff out there that's great at shaming people or just telling them, don't do it and follow these rules and it'll work. And it usually does. But if you don't get to, for me, if we don't get to the root of it, why do I compulsively spend? Why do I need to feel like I'm enough by buying uh fancy houses or whatever it is, like if then I'm still not going to fill that hole uh, that leaves me feeling that I'm not enough. Yep. Yep. Because you can have all the money in the world and still not feel like you're enough. Yeah. It's, um, I, I appreciate that you're, that you are out there saying, here's what I, here's what didn't work, right? It's not a mistake. It's a lesson. A lot of people look at failures as failures. And, and I do think, you know, the message that it's actually a lesson. Um, and then we can build from there as long as we keep getting back up and, and, and giving it a, giving it the old college try or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's, I think it's important for people to understand that um, successful people didn't get there on the first shot. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that you have to work at. It didn't just, um, you know, there might be a few people out there where it magically just all aligned and they didn't have to do any work. But I imagine that the majority of people actually, even if they got a nice nest egg thrown their way, they still had to uh, do some work around it. Most definitely. And um, well, I know we're running out of time and I'm, I, I, but I just want to say, I really like, I really appreciate what you bring. I do think it's so important for people to know that they're enough. um, That just like, just how they are right now is perfect. um, And that if you want it to be better, you get there. If you feel like there's something you want to strive towards, you can still find the resources to do it. You can get the information. You can Google it. There's resources at our fingertips and that um, like, we don't, we don't all get there perfectly. Uh, There's a lot of struggle along the way. And even when we get there, we're still going to have some, a uh, little bit of a backslide, or we might have a little bit of the blind spot or some of those old stories that like to resurface once in a while when we're feeling really good. Um, <laughs> and then to just like, but keep doing the work and showing up and, and have a spiritual practice and have a meditation practice because when you can be with yourself, 
like that's for me, the gift is being able to be with myself and saying, yeah, this is enough. And life is amazing. And it only gets better from here. So good. So true. It's funny. You just made me something you said made me think about the fact that I've had people say that the mindful millionaire is like a parenting manual because and, and it may be that you're reparenting yourself, just to right. be clear, or it may be used for your children or both, but there's so much opportunity for many of us to revisit things that, that will bring us great joy by just taking a little deeper look. Absolutely. Got to take a deeper look. It's not always fun. <laughs> it's, it, the payoff is worth it. The payoff is worth it. Where can people find you on social media and where can people find your book? So on social media, uh, let's see, Facebook, I have a community called the Mindful Millionaire Community. It's oriented around helping people when they get the book, then they can come into the community and share their stories. Uh, Instagram, Lisa Peterson, Twitter, Lee Lusky, which is really funny. L-E-I-S-L-O-S-L-O. Yeah, I don't even know. Lusky. <laughs> we lived in a ski town. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but the book can be found at mindfulmillionairebook.com. And, and you'll get all kinds of good stuff there. Awesome. Well, I hope you sell a million uh, Mindful Millionaire books and I hope you keep going out there and, and sharing your wisdom and, and just uh, inspiring people to uh, go for the best version of themselves. Thank you, Bob, so much. Well, it's been so awesome. I just want to say to our guests that are listening, please don't forget to share the love. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google, or any of your favorite podcast players. Lisa Peterson, it has been such a pleasure. I wish you so much success, and I hope that we'll connect in the future. And um, I, I just want to shout out to FinCon because that's how we connected. Um, I, I love FinCon in that it brings people together, folks and other folks who are looking to spread the word about financial literacy and, and really trying to actually have a positive impact on people's lives. Um, so, Lisa, thanks so much, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you.